My guest today, Audrey Waters, joins me to talk about how technology is changing education. Today in episode 18 of Teaching in Higher Ed. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Audrey Waters, thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I think the most challenging job for me is going to be to talk a little bit through your bio. You have a very <laughs> eclectic background. I'm going to give it a shot, but I love your your succinct uh, but but also compelling bio that you have on your blog, which is that you are an education writer, a recovering academic, a serial dropout, a rabble rouser, and some days Ed Tex Cassandra. <laughs> So you have to first, yes. <laughs> I, I did some Googling because all of that made perfect sense to me except the Cassandra part. So I was trying to figure out if you were m- referring to Greek mythology or the Urban Dictionary. I, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, Greek Greek mythology. And I've just been in, um, I, I fill it with a K on my site and I get into debates with folks whether or not Cassandra in Greek mythology should be a C or a K. Um, but I do choose it for that for, um that reference and this idea, I think I feel like I spend a lot of time sort of pointing out sort of um, some of the things that sort of are a bit are tinged with doom <laughs> and gloom um, about education technology. Mm-hmm. So pointing out some of the problems um, as a counter, as like as a counter to some of the overhyped promises that we are that we hear so often about technology being disruptive or transformational or revolutionary. So I'm, I'm Cassandra who says, no, wait, <laughs> that's not actually what's going to happen. Oh, I love it. And have you seen by chance the Urban Dictionary definition? No, I haven't. I, I just have to read you a little because you're going to crack up at my, uh, is she going Greek mythology or is she going Urban Dictionary? Because <laughs> Cassandra is another word for someone who is amazing, kick-ass, ah. incredible, spectacular, awesome, without a doubt, the most beautiful girl on the face of the earth. She's the best <laughs> girlfriend a guy could ask for if I were to go on about how awesome this girl is, it would take forever. So in short, Cassandra would be the girl you're totally in love with, no doubt. I love that double meaning then. That's perfect. <laughs> I thought it was I thought either one of these totally works for her from what I've read. <laughs> That's great. And you have to describe your profile picture for people who are listening in their car and maybe haven't seen your blog yet. The photo was taken by my friend Alan Levine, who's known um as Cogdog, I think, in internet and web circles. And um, we were at the University of Mary Washington last year in their new maker space. And there was a 3D printed shark jaw that I held up to my face um, and he snapped a perfect picture. But again, it's, you know, I feel like, um, I feel like I, as someone who sort of, um, I spend a lot of time, in fact, sort of joking on one hand about sort of the sharks in the water with the ed tech industry, but then also sort of wanting to show that I can be just as fierce back 
You are a lit geek and beer snob. You love tattoos and technology. You loathe mushy foods and romantic comedies. And you are not ashamed to admit that you like ABBA and dislike Tolkien. You are somewhat ashamed to admit you've not finished Ulysses. You also haven't finished a few other educational endeavors, which I love. And you have a master's degree in folklore. And I love this. You were once considered an academic expert on political pie throwing. You can see all of those things make me so well qualified to write about ed tech for it's, a living. I hate to sound too pessimistic on the subject, but better you than some of the people with a lot longer CVs on, in the area. Because <laughs> as you as you well know, there's a lot of what we say versus what reality is. What are we hearing today and what have we been hearing is the promise of ed tech and where has it delivered and not delivered? It's, it's, it's really interesting to me because I spend, you know, my, like I said, like you said, my background is in folklore and I'm really interested in stories. I'm interested in the stories that we tell ourselves, particularly about technology. I think that American culture in particular is so caught up with the idea that science and technology provide solutions to make our lives better, to make businesses more efficient, um, but they're very much sort of this sort of future-facing, but it works, stories around science and technology work very well with the sort of future-facing ideology that I think Americans believe in, progress, for example. And so I think that when we talk about, when we hear about new technologies in education, it seems to dovetail with all of those other stories. Somehow, school is um, schooling, but K-12 and higher ed is outmoded. It's traditional. It's stuck in the past. It hasn't changed for hundreds of years. Um, and that now, uh, it's always now, now and in the future, technology is going to be the sort of transformational um tools to sort of make things more relevant, make things more efficient. I mean, I, I think that that's, I don't, I don't subscribe to that story, but you hear that story almost everywhere these days. Um, and what's interesting to me is when you look at the history of EdTech, we've actually been telling this story for a very, very long time. Yeah, one of your books is on that very thing, looking at the history. Tell me about the early days and, and where the echoes are still sounding a lot the same today. Well, this is one of the things that's really it's sort of fascinating to me. Uh, and I think it is tied as well to um, our focus on the future and our focus on technology. We tend to not look at the past. Um, we tend to, I live in California, or you live in California as well. I yes. think that California is very much like, is, is actually sort of like the perfect example of that in America, in a sort of American belief that like California is all about the promised land and the future. Um, so what's, what's fascinating is as we see the tech sector, Silicon Valley sort of become more and more powerful in our society that we sort of, I, I noticed that we're definitely not paying attention to even the stories around technology. Um, so I'm working on a book on the history of teaching machines, um, and so you know how long, how have we in the U.S. been thinking about ways that we can use machines? And this predates computers, certainly. But use machines to make education automated, make instruction automated, make assessment automated, um, and to sort of make the whole process look a lot more like. 
uh, factory, perhaps. And then this, you know, this, this dates back to there were patents in the late 1800s um, for folks sort of building very early devices that they argued would teach people. And really, the history of the, of the 20th century is um, if you look at the history of ed tech, there are these devices being developed again and again and again that people argued would make would make education um, more personalized. Um, students could learn at their own pace. Um, that teachers would be freed from lecturing in order to give individualized support. Um, these are the arguments in 1920, and there are the arguments in 2014. Hmm. What do you see the promise of at tech if that's not it? If we can't make it faster, better, where, where can we see a way to leverage these new tools? Yeah, I like to think about that we have, I mean, I think we have that legacy of education technology um, falls quite neatly into um, some of the work that I call, like the development of educational psychology. And a lot of it, I think, reflects the work of B.S. Skinner. Um, and he, he was one of the developers of teaching machines, not the first, but perhaps the best known um, inventor of a teaching machine. He had this idea that we would have programmed instruction, right? So that we would have machines that would sort of handle um, the instruction and assessment for students. I think that's one model of thinking about what technology can do. I think a different model is the one that comes from the web. And that's thinking about the bit of programmed instruction, we have the programmable web. And that really puts technology and tools into the hands of students and teachers in really new and interesting ways, rather than being just a recipient of knowledge. That students now, particularly with the web, can be sort of active contributors, can actually be building their own knowledge, sharing their own knowledge, and doing so in a meaningful, doing so in a meaningful way, um, not simply filling out exercises, um, whether on a, on a machine or on a computer, but really actually sort of constructing knowledge and sharing that and developing that with a network, um, uh, with a network that's uh, readable and writable and programmable, I think is, is to me, much, much more interesting than just using technology to sort of make flashcards more efficient. How do you see then the classroom changing and the space between where learning begins and ends? Has there been evolution there or should there be evolution in terms of? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think that we're in a period of, um, and not just not just for education, but it, but culturally, I think we're in a period of really profound um, shift because of the web and internet technologies. Not just because of the computer per se, right? The ability to sort of process things algorithmically and process things more rapidly than humans could, but because of the internet and 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 the web. I think that how we think about information is changing, um, how we think about knowledge, access, distribution is changing as well. And I think that, I mean, I, I think that, you know, that, uh, education institutions, they are conservative and in, in traditional in many ways. And some of those ways are, are, are good. 
you know, this is this is how we talk about the, you know, this is how we sort of preserve some of these um, stories, some of these um, some of these things that, that that matter that matter outside the business world is through is through school. But I do think that we'll see um, in coming decades that we're going to have to I think reevaluate um, what we expect students to be able to do and what we expect them to be able to learn from school because sort of becoming a, a sort of to master content is is sort of seems like um, less central of a of, of a piece to what sort of what sort of future um, the expectations of the future. Right? I think that in a world where you don't have to know about Franz Ferdinand's assassination in 1914 um, in Sarajevo, like that that little bit of you know that that, that I retained from a history class <laughs> is going to be sort of less. Um, so knowing those facts is less important than be able to sort of be able to sort of talk um, talk more broadly and situate those. And I think that so we're, I think we're going to move away from. I think we'll have to move away from sort of facts. Thinking about sort of assimilating. How do we assimilate? How do we process? How do we share knowledge? And those are the skills that we'll really focus on. Um, I think we'll have to help students uh, attain. So we we recognize that knowledge is just changing that the access to it that there's the whole idea of students just we used to have such a high regard for that authority figure up front and today right. that authority figure is amazingly in our pockets in this tiny device that we could get so much more information than what this person up front has in their in their minds i think we can participate i mean this is one of the things that i you know as a I, mean, I do say I'm a, I'm a recovering academic, but I see myself as a scholar, and I think that scholarship um, scholarship is really changing because of the web. I think we have the ability to participate in scholarly conversations in new and exciting ways that really do live outside, um, outside the academia. Um, you have access, you know, thanks to things like Twitter, you, have ac- you can have access to um, experts and professors and politicians, celebrities, in in ways that we, we didn't have before, and it's easier, I think, to participate in scholarly discussions in social media and on blogs, um, and in in you know in the discussion pages on Wikipedia than it is in some of these other more traditional, more exclusive um, locations, like you know, like the academic journal or um, the university itself. I noticed that you recently wrote about Apple's new smartwatch. And so that (laughs) kind of begs the question, we look at how knowledge is changing. Can we talk about distractions? I'm, I've still, I'm not a zealot in either direction. I'm someone who has embraced technology to help facilitate learning for a long time. And yet I also say, let's shut everything off and just talk to each other and have a dialogue. And so I, I mean, I will admit to being a complete fan of the Apple stuff and watching the keynote when they did it and, and being initially excited about it. And then it was funny. It didn't even dawn on me when just the opportunities for cheating that it could potentially introduce let alone just one more thing that distracts because it was already in our pockets, but now it's actually on our wrist. So where do you find yourself in terms of 
the potential for just more distraction than ever? Or, or is it just different distraction? Were we always distracted? Um, I think it is different distractions. Certainly. I mean, I, uh, I am a doodler. I was always a doodler in class and I can definitely say that I spent, um, I found recently at, back at my dad's house, sort of some of the, um, some of my uh, spiral notebooks from high school and they were not filled with, they were not filled with notes. They were filmed with my favorite um, rock band names drawn in fancy lettering. Right. So I understand. I mean, I, I have, I, I know that students, um, students fail to pay attention in class long before we have these digital distractions. I do think that the, that a lot of these digital tools demand our attention in different ways. So it's different than me sort of not paying attention in, because my mind has wandered or because I feel, you know, I'm, I'm daydreaming. That's a very different thing than sort of push notifications, the buzzes, the beats that demand our attention. And I think that those are the things that we need to sort of navigate. Um, and for me as a writer, I have to turn off a lot of those things in order to actually have um, time to focus on my writing. You know, I can't, I can't get anything done if I'm always responding to the little red, um, you know, number on my e- that I've got email to check or that I've got Twitter notifications to check. And I think that those, but those push notifications really do change the. Um, they really do change what um, what's being demanded of us, and that's a different thing. I think that that's a different thing we have to navigate and help help students understand as well. I'm not sure if you are a viewer of the Colbert Report, but he. I'm not. No. <laughs> he recently interviewed the guy who has written a book on the marshmallow studies. Are you familiar with those? That yes, yes. And it, it was just a great reminder. I mean, there's, there's uh, Walter Michelle is his name, by the way, the author of the marshmallow test. And that's either just come out or it's about to come out. They would give children a marshmallow and then say, if you don't eat this one, and I'm going to come back, I don't know if it's five minutes or 10 minutes. If I come back, you can have two more. And so it was this delayed gratification. And they did studies on them 10 years and 20 years and 30 years down the road. And there's just this huge correlation between a lot of different success factors and that ability to delay. But the other thing that comes up around this research that I think is really an inspiration for those of us in education is that it's not a fixed trait that we actually can work on this, all of us at any age, and get better at it. And so I think in terms of these distractions, when we create a culture that, that says, I care too much to just let you sit there and do this to yourself or let the device do it to you. And also right. we, we see the research showing that it's not just that student who chooses to do it, but that it impacts the people sitting around them too, in terms of their learning and ability to retain. I think that it's definitely like I said, I mean, I think that we are at this, at this um, really um, interesting moment of technological change. And, you know, I think that Although people have been saying, it's funny because people have been saying for quite some time um, that, you know, once this generation becomes teachers, then everything will change because they'll be more tech savvy and they'll introduce more technology in the classroom. You know, and, and myself, I mean, as, as a child of, I suppose, like the early Apple II, um, IIe computers, so I could say that I would, I would have been, you know, one of those generations that 
I grew up around computers, um, but people my generation aren't necessarily the ones who sort of have introduced technology in the classroom. I think that we are always sort of thinking that that, that somehow students somehow students are going to sort of become it, it actually ties back to the sort of whole digital native thing, which I, I can't stand. But somehow, if you're born in a certain generation around certain tools, that you're automatically adept and critical and savvy, um, and that you're that you use you wield these wisely, um, and sort of your practices change. And I think that we need to do a much better job um, as educators in helping students. Um, helping all of us really um, understand exactly what where we're taking where we're taking our technology adoption to what end. Mozilla has done a lot of work around this to define digital literacy or digital literacy competencies, and it's because I do think as educators I have been witness to the idea of oh you know we don't even need to teach these young whippersnappers technology mm-hmm. anymore because oh they they're just so good at it and I am one who. I, I grew up, my, my early career was in computer training, particularly in applications. And so I, I, it is hard to tell you this, Audrey, but <laughs> there are still students, not many, but there are still students that I teach at the undergrad and also at the grad level who are hitting enter at the end of every line twice to double space their papers. Yeah. And yeah. I think, and we, but, but that, and, and this is colleagues who, don't collect things electronically, so they would never know that. They they would just think, oh, right. this this looks great, and then you just think, but it's not great. They're not literate. They inter- and of course that's just an example of word processing. But when we think about the literacy that it takes to do well, to go out and find the information we need to do good at our jobs, that we haven't really thought about yeah. that. So I will link to that in the show notes. It's Mozilla, yeah. Mozilla's digital literacy. I think there's a lot to say to our faculty too, like you started to to talk about, because we're woefully underprepared. And the stakes are getting higher too. I mean, I think that that's, that's the piece of it is that while, you know, while education has been very slow to, um, to address this, in fact, for many schools, particularly at the K through 12 level, their response to digital devices is still to ban it. Right? You aren't allowed to bring your cell phone. You aren't allowed to bring a, a device from home. If you're going to use the computer, you do it in the computer lab once a week, and it so that you can practice for standardized test taking. Right? Maybe a little word processing uh, lesson, but we don't. We really don't. We really don't teach this. And we don't, and, and as we've moved, as education has moved slowly, the rest, you know, the rest of the tech sector has moved really rapidly. And I think that we, you know, we aren't helping students, we aren't helping teachers understand things like the terms of service or the privacy policies or what happens to their data, who owns their content, um, what, what are they, what happens when they use these technologies, what, what sort of digital footprint are they leaving behind? What sort of um, digital portfolio are they building for themselves, or are they sort of accruing value to other technology companies' um, profit margins? And we just we, we just aren't we aren't helping we aren't helping uh, students ask these questions. And I think the Mozilla framework really does a good job of thinking about the, all the different pieces because it isn't just simple as learn to program. It's certainly much more complicated than uh, learn to 
you know, be a basic user of a computer. There are a whole number of sort of ethical questions. They play out very different, um, very differently. For example, if you're a woman online, there's so many things that we just aren't, we just aren't talking about. What has your research looked into as far as, um, in, in regards to privacy, the idea that we hope one of the things a college education can bring is a change of perspective, that it's no longer about what my parents told me or what I saw maybe on the news or what someone else told me they saw on the news. Uh, but now I actually get to rediscover really what I truly think. Yeah, I'm, I grapple with this a lot. And as someone, you know, I mean, for me, a lot of the writing that I do is, um, although it is for public writing, I post it on my blog, it's Creative Commons license, it's definitely with the idea of it being shared and read by others. It really is still me working through my ideas. And there is a certain amount of vulnerabilities, I think, that that, that involves. And there, but there's a certain amount of vulnerability that learning always involved, but it does take on a different um, a different sort of level to it when we do it in public, right? So that it isn't just a matter of I'm writing this essay and my teacher is going to be the only person that sees it, or I'm writing this essay and my teacher uses peer, you know, peer grading, so three of the, my peers in my class are going to see it. When you're writing online, there's the potential that, you know, anyone, anyone with, with access to the web, web it. And I think that that I think that that changes the stakes in in many ways, many many good ways. I mean, I think that students can get students can get feedback um, outside the classroom. I think that students think about they think about their work in a different way when it's um, open for public consumption. I think that they think about that. Um, I think that it hopefully ideally prompts professors to think about, are they asking students to do meaningful work, right? Are we asking students to just write another essay on, um, you know, the role of gender in Merchant of Venice, or are we asking them to really do something different or meaningful about the Merchant of Venice that might be working on Wikipedia or annotating, annotating the play, for example. Um, but I do think that, I do think that, um, Again, we don't we don't we don't often lay these practices there, and we don't lay these practices there for our students. Because um, at the same time, if we are only asking our students to work within the confines of the learning management system, for example, um, it's not as though that data. It's not as though there. I mean, there is still the tracking of data. There is still um, the the observation um, and the use of that content by, by other technologies. And so I think that we just probably should talk talk more with our students about what this looks like and what this means. When you look out at the higher ed landscape, where are the places where you're feeling inspired today? Um, my One of my favorite um, initiatives started at the University of Mary Washington. Um, it's called Domain of One's Own. And it's an effort, they piloted it, um, I think a couple of years ago, um, and it's officially a program now, where they give every student and faculty member at the university their own domain. And I don't just mean they get a bit of web space on the UNB or umw.edu slash tilde, your last name, but they actually let the students purchase their own domain. So they can buy, you know, my, you could buy audreywaters.com, 
or if you didn't want to be AudreyWaters.com, you could pick your own, pick your own domain. You get your domain. The university helps you set up a WordPress blog on it. There's some other software that they make it really easy for you to install, but it's your site. You own it. And at the end of, um, and of course, throughout throughout the, the university, they really encourage students to put their work, put their schoolwork on on their site, build a portfolio, think about what it means to have a digital, a professional and or personal digital identity on the internet. Um, but then when the students graduate, they get they get it. The university transfers ownership of their domain to the student. So the student actually have have their have their work. They can decide not pay for their domain and you know let it go away, or they can maintain it themselves. And I think that that's a really powerful um, that's a really powerful skill set. And that's a really powerful tool that they've done so. And that's what I was alluding to earlier as well with the programmable web, right? So these students, the liberal arts university, even though they aren't majoring in computer science, they've learned enough web design, web development, WordPress to be, to have some real marketable job skills. No matter what they majored in, you, if you can say, oh, yeah, I, I'm perfectly adept at I know how to install WordPress. I know how to work with HTML and CSS. That's a, that's a that's an important skill. When we think about the people that are likely to listen to this show, they are very likely to fit in the demographic of openness to embrace mm-hmm. technology, but perhaps not where they want to be in terms of their own competency. So I'd love to have you just give a little bit of advice for if we're not quite where we want to be, some initial steps, and and also if you'd share a little bit about your ed tech guide, which I'll link to in the show notes? Um, well, actually, I think that the Mozilla, um, I'm glad that you're linking to the Mozilla piece because there's lots of things within that that can help folks, whether it is wanting a better understanding of HTML, for example, um, whether it's thinking about what is it, you know, thinking about digital identity, whether it's thinking about security practices, right? Um, do you use unique uh, passwords for every website. Do you have? Do you keep sort of an inventory of all the things that you've signed up for your username and password for all the sites you've signed up for um, online? Like, are you thinking about what is it? You know, what does it mean to participate in 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 the World Wide Web? Um, I think the Mozilla Mozilla has a lot of great resources that that can apply to some of the very different um, demands that individuals might have. Because it's really not as simple as, you know, I just want to learn the program. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have, dif- we have, we all have, I think, different, different sorts of demands and needs based on our personal and professional, our professional selves. Um, for me, the, the EdTech Guide was sort of my initial attempt to sort of help bridge what I see as this gap that remains between folks who work in education and are interested in tech and folks who work in tech and are interested in education, because they, 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 you know, never the twain shall meet, if you will. Like they, they're just they don't have enough conversations with one another. They don't sort of understand the language, the history, the philosophy, the practices um, that, that that of the other of the other industry or or organization or entity. And so, trying to give a list of suggested readings that if you are a technologist 
for example, who decided that you want to start an ed tech company, um, you should probably you should probably do a bit a bit of research. Um, and similarly, if you're an educator who's interested in um, looking more closely at technology, you should sort of be aware of the culture, the history, um, in in a similar sort of way. What have I not asked you about in terms of ed tech and higher ed that we should chat about before we get on to recommendations? I think that one of the things that, that uh, I would I would stress again is uh, is questions around data and privacy and politics. I think that this is a conversation that education technology because for so long um, ed tech folks have had to sort of be cheerleaders to protect, like arguing, yes, we should have computers in the classroom. Yes, yes, you should put your material on the internet. Yes, it's okay if you tell your students to go to Wikipedia. Um, but I think that now we've reached a moment where I think we have to have, be a little bit more critical than just the cheerleading. And we need to ask, start asking some of the questions around the politics and the implications, particularly around data and privacy. Um, so those are the, those are the things that I, um, that I, I, I notice more and more, um, particularly, you know, when I go to education technology events, I notice the gender ratio, right? Far more men mm-hmm. than women get to be speakers. Um, I notice the sort of the lack of people of color at education technology events. And so I think that we need to sort of have, start asking more questions around, around social justice, data, tech, privacy, and the implications that aren't, aren't necessarily so sunny. And for anyone listening who would like a good first step, I had the opportunity to see the dean of the law school at the University of California, Irvine, and he was not speaking on the topic of privacy, but we had a chance to correspond with him afterward and say, if we could read anything on another topic about privacy that we have an interest in, what would you recommend? And he recommended a book by Lori Andrews. It's called I Know Who You Are, and I Saw What You Did, Social Networks and the Death of Privacy. And I think what at that particular time when I read it and also when it was published, there was a lot going on about the privacy implications of governmental actions. And so we, we, mm-hmm. we were reading a lot about that in the press. But what the book really, the takeaway for me and, and her takeaway is we're worrying about the wrong thing. <laughs> you should be worrying about these companies. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, this is this is the, the thing when we, when we sort of, I, I hear these comments made oftentimes by education technology companies. I'm, I'm sort of shocked that they could sort of be so cavalier about the amount of data that they're collecting on students, right? So the, the CEO of Newton says that they have, you know, millions of data points on each user. And I'm like, millions of data points? My God, what are you, like, what, what are you tracking and, and why? Um, you know, Coursera, the, 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 one of the MOOC startups, claims that, you know, they're using student uh, biometric data, click patterns, how they, you know, how they um, to sort of assess and identify um, and pre- identify students and prevent cheating. And so I think that these questions around, are, are questions around privacy are, are really important. This is the time in the show when we each get to give a recommendation or a series of recommendations, and mine's real quick, so I'll do it. It's the actor who plays a part on the show Parks and Rec. His name is Aziz Ansari, 
he just did a little bit on Letterman where he defined feminism. And it is just a delightful couple minute clip. And just like his no nonsense business where he has everybody in the audience, you know, clap if he says he's he's a feminist. And he says, clap in the audience if you're a feminist. And he gets some claps. And then he says, okay, those of you who didn't clap, you're lying. Because if you look up in the dictionary, what the word feminist means, it means we believe that men and women are equal. So you don't believe men and women are equal. And it was just, he just does this great bit. And it's just very accessible, I think, to lots of people that have a lot of emotions packed around that word. And so my friend um, teaches in women's studies, I'm going to be passing the clip on to her because she runs into that a lot of just what we what comes behind the word feminist. And it's just fun to see someone who's a celebrity talk about it in such a lighthearted but powerful way. And what recommendation do you have for the listeners? Um, I, I often make this recommendation um, for folks that are interested in education technology to pick up the book Mindstorms, um, written by Seymour Papert in 1980. And that always, it always sort of boggles my mind to think that this book came out in 1980. But Seymour Papert was the inventor of the language Logo, which um, folks my age might have actually done some early programming when they were in elementary school with Logo. But he has a really, I think, powerful way of thinking about what machines, what computing machines can do when they're in the hands of learners. And that it's, that it's about giving students agency to do incredible things, to sort of actualize their powerful ideas. And it's very different than the way in which I think ed tech that tends to see students as objects to be filled with content. So Mindstorms, Seymour Papert, written in 1980. That's my recommendation. Well, thank you so much for joining me and taking a chance on me who you'd never met before and just got a little <laughs> email. You, I really appreciate it. And just your contribution to all of these conversations. I've really enjoyed following you on Twitter, reading your blog, and I'm going to be linking to all those things. And it really just was an honor to get to have this conversation with you, Audrey. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been episode 18 of Teaching in Higher Ed. You can reach the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 18, where you can leave comments for Audrey or for myself and ask any questions you have or make suggestions. Speaking of which, if you'd like to make suggestions for future shows or guests, please do that at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. And if you haven't yet subscribed to the Teaching in Higher Ed weekly update, it's an email a week that automatically sends the notes from every podcast that we air along with an article per week on teaching in higher ed. Thanks to those who have subscribed already. You've got your free ed tech essentials guide. And when you subscribe, if you haven't yet, you'll get your own copy too. Thanks so much for listening and being a part of teaching the higher ed.